Hello and welcome to another episode of the Apex Law Podcast. I'm Alexander Theo Harris. And I'm Peter Smith. And today we're going to be discussing master service agreements. Before we launch right in, I do want to note that while Peter and I are attorneys, we're not your attorneys. If you do need legal advice, be sure to find competent legal counsel in your jurisdiction. All right, so the Master Service Agreement, the MSA. Well, what is it? So a Master Service Agreement is a single document that has all of the legal background terms that you'll need to be able to perform services for someone. The intent with an MSA is that that document is locked and stays static while other documents surrounding it, like statements of work or change orders, get added and appended to it. So you have your baseline terms that work across all of the work that you're going to be doing, and then as services change, you can update it easily without having to revise or sign a new contract. Yeah, so the MSA works best when you're going to have an iterative relationship between parties. Uh, I see this a lot in the manufacturing potentially distribution uh, contracts and oftentimes in a tech consulting contracts. So the idea is, like Alexander says, this is the static document and there's going to be a, a, another document, a purchase order, a statement of work, a change order form, something else where the parties are going to keep changing uh, the deliverables and how much they cost potentially and, and things like that. So there's so there's going to be part one, it's the MSA, that's the static document, and then a part two, there's going to be the statement of work or the purchase order, the document that's going to change based on the number of units you want to order or the new project or scope of work or whatever else is going to happen. Okay, so when do you use this kind of contract? I use this contract specifically in the manufacturing world. If there's a manufacturer who has a specific client who needs to make multiple orders over and over and over again, oftentimes they'll enter into a long-term MSA, three years, five years, to say, here's what's going to govern our relationship, but I'm going to come to you and purchase a certain number of units over that three or five year period. And I see this used most frequently in service relationships where there's somebody who's providing consulting services or something that's a bit more amorphous that's going to change over time. So I'll see a master service agreement signed just for consulting overall. And then as new projects come up, um, potentially, you know, there's new software design that needs to change or they're staffing up more programmers, that kind of thing. I'll see additional statements of work added or uh, appended to that master service agreement as the relationship continues. Yeah, so it, this is a useful tool in larger organizations where there's, you know, you know, hundreds if not thousands of employees because then you can sign up a vendor under the MSA for the company to bind the two parties in an agreement, but then you can delegate the authority to specific project managers for certain statements of work and purchase orders and things like that. All right, so when is the wrong time to use a, this contract, Alexander? So this contract is useful when you have some big overarching relationship that you're not quite sure on the specifics of. If you do know specifically what it is that you're going to need, you know, I'm going to be plugging in 20 hours a week over the next three months, or I know that this is a purchase of some specific parts that I need one time or a couple times over the next couple months. If you know all those terms up front, it doesn't make a lot of sense to try to break it out into separate pieces. So it may make more sense just to have a single contract that governs the rules about your relationship. An MSA is going to be useful when you're not sure or there's going to be some continuing thing that's happening year after year. It doesn't make a lot of sense to have all of that overhead that simplifies things in the future if you only need this for a one-shot deal. Yeah, you want it to you want it to work for both parties, right? You want to make sure that both parties are excited to be locked into this long-term relationship that then can be altered with those statements of work or purchase orders. So you don't want to use it if 
one side is going to constantly try to renegotiate the, the broader picture terms. You just don't, I mean, it's no good for either party, right? If, if it's a lose-win in some way. So when I see it as a win-win, like I mentioned before, you're working with a very large company. They know that they have to have different divisions sign off on your purchase order or whatever. But as a, as a, as a service provider to that large company, you're like, great, I'm in for three years. I know that they want to work with me for the next three years. It's kind of a win-win in that situation, right, in that scenario. Okay, Peter, when we're drafting MSAs, what are some of the terms that you want to make sure are definitely in there and our listeners should be keeping an eye out for? So when I think of an MSA, the terms that I always want to see in the main part of the MSA are warranties or disclaimers of warranties for the deliverables. So if you're, if you're ordering some kind of widget from a manufacturer and you want to make sure that you're getting a quality warranty on what it is they're going to provide to you, whether it's workmanship or that the materials are going to meet a certain standard. Maybe you have an, an ISO standard or some other external standard that you want them to meet. And then conversely, if I was the manufacturer, I'd want to disclaim all warranties that I was uncomfortable providing over the next five years. Does that make sense? So those that's makes the total sense. That's one of the most important things for me uh, that I look for. What about you? Uh, I look to see if there's some sort of stopgap in the event the statement of work isn't drafted the way that it should have been. So typically when I'm drafting an MSA, I expect that my client is going to um, get this MSA in perfect working order. And then the statement of work is something that may not even come back through our office. So the statement of work may be all the terms and the prices and everything that they're working on with this client. And it might be changing over time, but they might not send it back to Apex to review again. So I try to build the MSA in such a way that knowing there may be holes in their statement of work, let's try to shovel as much as we can and put all that work on the burden of the MSA itself so the statement of work can be really slim and changed by the client on their own. So to that end, I try to build in stop gaps for potential places where the statement of work might have holes. One of those big ones is if a price isn't listed or if a service goes above and beyond what's listed in the statement of work, what happens? Typically, what I try to do is have some sort of flat hourly fee built into the MSA itself. Hey, in the event that there's work in excess of what's in the statement of work, what was specified, it'll be billed out at this hourly rate. And then everybody's agreeing to that up front. Even if the statement of work fails to list a price, if it has something that goes well beyond the scope, there's something in the contract that covers it. Yeah. So what Alexander is saying is, is you know, your, your MSA is meant to be your backstop, right? So your MSA is meant to be uh, the gap filler for when the parties get really sloppy and they're sending POs back and forth and, oh, crud, we forgot to put in the price per unit or crud, we forgot to put in how much the hourly rate is for our labor. And so, you know, I think that's really good uh, drafting from Alexander, right? What he's saying is, is that what's the most important thing in this? It's price. So sure, the purchase order is going to say, I want 10 widgets, but they, they may not write in the price. And, and you as the manufacturer may say, okay, start the process on 10 widgets. And then you got to fight over how much that's actually going to cost. Mm -hmm. And we see it happen all the time that somebody asks for something outside of scope and the parties go, oh yeah, no problem. Oh, we agreed that it was going to be blue. You guys actually need a purple at the last minute. The purple dye costs more. Nobody bothered to specify that in the purchase. What happens now? Mm -hmm. And if the MSA is drafted well, like Alexander's saying, then, then there's some backstop there. And I I'd broaden that to just say the pricing process and the whole payment process in general probably should be spelled out in the MSA. Wouldn't you agree, Alexander, the whole, whether it's net 30, net 15, if it's invoiced monthly, biweekly, whatever, um, should all be backstopped in the MSA. And then, of course, the change orders, 
the, M, uh, the statement of work if, or the purchase order, whatever that part two is of your MSA, you can amend those things. Mm-hmm. I really try to design the MSA so that the statement of work is just those things that are really going to change. It's the price, it's the hours, it's the deadlines, it's the service that's being provided. Anything else, payment terms, dispute resolution, venue, all sorts of stuff, I want that built into the MSA so the statement of work is really clean so my client can change it on their own. And if you haven't listened to some of our other podcasts, we've got some on boilerplate provisions, uh, things that talk about dispute resolution, venue, and all that stuff. So go check those ones out. But, but that's, that's the kind of thing that you, just, you want in your MSA as a, back, as a backstop. You want to know what those terms are. Um, but really, as the, the business people kind of don't care. They just want to do business and make sure, you know, if there's a dispute, they'll care, right? But until then, uh, they just want to keep, keep business flowing and, and use those purchase orders. So a couple of other provisions that I, not necessarily must-haves, but things that I, I typically like people to think about always, what's the intellectual property effect on your agreement? Yeah, uh, who owns just, it coming out the other side? Who owns it? Uh, do you need to get certifications that you know your customer actually owns the trademarks that you're about to slap on this widget? Um, things like that. Always, always, always consider IP. And I know that we've brought this up in so many other podcasts, but I'm just going to highlight it here just in case somebody's missed one of those other podcasts. For IP stuff, understand that there's a lot of content that gets produced and there can be questions around who owns it if you have some third party producing it. So stuff like your blog posts, your tweets, graphic design, uh, copy for your website, everything can be potentially an IP issue. Make sure you understand who walks away with it at the end. Right. If you if you take away any tool from this, it's that put IP into your standard process just as something to think about. Okay. The second thing I'd say is tax. Um, with every deal that I do, I try to always have a bucket, just like IP. I try to always think through, okay, what are the tax implications of what it is that I'm doing, just so that I'm aware of what, what they are. So those are some things that aren't, it's not critical. Tax might not even be an issue for your MSA. But if you're crossing state lines, if there's weird sales tax issues, who's going to pay for those, those, those taxes when, at what times, could be important. So just think about those things. I always tell my clients, I hope that this gets drafted, you guys sign it, and never look at it again. That is the best case scenario, is that everybody is just satisfied and you can keep pushing forward. The MSA is there for the times that that doesn't work out, and there is some dispute, and you need to look at it and go, what did we actually agree to here? Right, exactly. And I I think um, to that end, the other thing that I would say is, and this, again, might not apply, that's why it's not a must-have term, but uh, is a, uh, a return policy. So if it's for actual goods, oh, yeah. uh, manufacturing, distribution, that kind of stuff, what's the return policy like? And then if it is tech consulting, like Alexander mentioned before, is there an acceptance? Uh, is there a review and acceptance of the software? Did it meet the functionality requirements? If not, what happens? You know, I think that, that could, that's something that you don't want to write out in a purchase order every single time or a statement of work or whatever. So having that in your backstop uh, items is good. The last thing I want to touch on just briefly is change orders and the way that those work. So we frequently see that scope changes or the products change. Something changes after the agreement is signed. What happens and who's on the hook for that cash and, and any cost that change? And, and a lot of times it's not even the cost. I, I should be very clear here. Sometimes you change the color of something and the price is exactly the same. But now there's a supplier that needs to come and deliver that stuff and it delays delivery by a few days. Are you still on the hook on the same delivery timelines timelines that you had? Or is there some new process that's in place given the changes that were requested? What, what, what should the business person be prepared for in that, in that scenario? Just anything that comes along? 
Is it a change in the materials cost? Is it a change in the, what's the? So the reason I like having people do change orders, and, and let me be clear, change orders are administration. They are overhead. They are work that needs to be done just for the sake of doing work in some cases. The benefit to them though, is it forces somebody to sit down and think about what's actually changing here and what the potential costs and implications of that are. So all the time we see somebody say, oh, they came back and they said they needed something a little different, so we just did it. And that's fine most of the time. The times that it isn't fine is when it does kick something out down the road or when it does change the cost of something in unexpected ways. So so what you're saying is, is so I think what I hear you saying is, is that don't just accept the change that your client's asking you for, document it. Document think, it. Think it through and then document it. That's, mm-hmm. that's what you're saying, yeah. And as part of that change order form, you should have language in there that says, this may impact the price in this way, and this may impact the timelines in this way. Yeah, okay, I see what you're saying. So is are, do you envision, so is there an MSA that's the, you know, it's the part one, here's the body of the MSA, part two, there's a purchase order, but then also there's a change order as well? Yes, I feel like a change order is an important part of the MSA. And typically when we draft MSAs, we're also providing a change order form. It doesn't need to be anything special, to be super clear here. A change order form can be literally both parties on a napkin, writing it out and signing at the bottom. That's totally fine. And, and when I say we provide a change order form, I really mean it's a form. It is a bunch of blank lines so that somebody can fill in what they need there. Right. So some best practices to keep in mind with MSAs and purchase orders, number them, have a serial system that you can keep track of for different projects. Project names are great, that kind of stuff. And then, and the reason why you might want to do that is, is then you can have a serial number or project name on the change order that's affecting that previous purchase order. Mm-hmm. That's great. And that's different and separate than having an amendment or an addendum to your MSA, right? There could be some fundamental term in the MSA that needs to be altered, amended, changed. Um, And that's an MSA is an excellent, excellent tool. Um, It's something that most business owners should just have in their toolbox to know that, hey, I can, we can enter into this long-term master agreement and then have these smaller documents that, you know, are meant to just tackle the little business terms that that come up over time. But, you know, uh, think about, really think through when you're using it and when you don't want to use it. Um, because I think a lot of people get enamored with an MSA and it's just more work sometimes than it's worth. Yeah. I see a a lot of folks who will try to use it just in every circumstance. It's not meant for every circumstance. It's really meant for things where there's some uncertainty, there's some change that's going to be coming down the line and you want to have a contract in place that's overarching and allows for that. If you know what's going to be happening, just use a normal contract. Normal service agreement, normal purchase order, uh, normal manufacturing. No, just a just a normal regular straight up agreement. Yeah, regular contract. That's what. It, yeah, I mean, I think I think the best case scenario for an MSA is you know you work with your attorney, you get an MSA drafted, and then you shove it in a drawer, and you're just using purchase orders and statements of work, right? And and over that term of that you know three five years, whatever the case is, that I, that, I love that. That's great. That means that your business is going the way that it's supposed to go. Mm-hmm. And rather than trying to scramble to get new contracts signed with MSAs, I, I, and Peter, maybe you can provide some additional insight on this, but I see MSAs be updated maybe every three to five years. There'll be some addendum or some new version that has uh, terms that are designed to protect against the new issues that a, a client is coming across. But other than that, MSAs tend to be very long-term things that can just sit there and, and kind of work. Yeah, no, no. I, yeah, absolutely. That's that's the point. I think. Um, 
I think if you're amending it any more than every three years or, you know, three to five years, I think having just a regular little contract is what you wanted to do in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So to recap, an MSA is an overarching document that you can use to uh, provide some level of static terms while other terms are changing. It also gives clients an easy way to update some of the, the terms that they know about that don't necessarily need to be baked into the contract itself over time without having to go back to an right, attorney. Right, right, right. Part one, the MSA. Part two, your statement of work, purchase order, the flexible piece, document, whatever. Okay, Peter, if anybody does want help from us on their MSAs, where can they find us? You can find uh, Apex Lot, apexlg.com. Please feel free to contact us at contact at apexlg.com. We're always looking for more topics to use in the podcast. So please feel free to reach us through that. I'm Alexander Theo Harris. And I'm Peter Smith. Thanks for listening. 